This episode is brought to you in part by Form Kitchens, Signature Doors and Windows, and Modern in Denver Magazine. Now, on to the show. It took me pretty much five years to explore, to figure out what I really like. So it's really hard to just reach a conclusion right now, just figure out, oh yeah, I want to do this, I want to do that. I want to do grad school, I don't want to do grad school. It might be too early on to make a decision. Take a little bit of time off and just try to think what you like. And eventually, follow your gut. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello, and welcome to Architecting. Hey. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. Yeah, making it through. Just curious, who uh, who's on the podcast tonight? I think you know who's on the podcast. Oh, yeah, I was there. You were there, yeah. Uh, not typical that you're at these recordings, but today we have a recording from a live panel discussion that took place at CU Denver's College of Architecture and Planning Building. So we've done these events in the past. I've been like reading ads and now I feel like I'm in like ad ad voice. Let me get back to like normal voice here. Uh, so anyway, so we, we've done these events in the past at CU Boulder, like that you've been on. Mm-hmm. And those were called, that was part of his series that already started up called Coffee with an Architect. And so we kind of just took that over and named this event Lunch with an Architect and recorded this about a week before Final Crits hit. And we got a pretty good turnout from students. It might have been from the free pizza we had there. But yeah, and you even dropped by for some free pizza. <laughs> yeah, I was more so there for the podcast. Oh, well, thank it's you. Good, wow. It's a good crew you had. Yeah. So I, uh, a student a CU student and a sometime editor of this podcast, Trevor Motzko, uh, pitched the event as a good way for students to get to know their professors, especially these new professors at the school, and just to get advice and about academia and, and life beyond school. Denver's been getting an influx of uh, good new professors in, uh, and I wanted to use this opportunity to get to know three of the, the newer ones better, I guess the newest ones. I don't normally like to do this, but I'll do. I'll give them like a real bio introduction because they are pretty new to to Denver. So we have Leon Lee uh, or Lee. Uh, he has a, a bachelor's of science from Nanjing University, an MRC from Cambridge, and an MBARC from Rice. You'll you'll hear about his experiences. Beyond that, he worked for OMA. Uh, SOM, and then he has his own uh, great firm uh, doing some cool work, Office for Roundtable. Cool name. I know. Damn. So hard for names. Anyway, next uh, up, we had uh, Jose Abera, who has an Associates of Arts in Architecture degree from Miami-Dade College, BARC from Cornell, and a post-pro MARC from Princeton among other roles, he's previously taught at Princeton, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and the University of Virginia. And finally, we have Asia Crawford, a very interesting subject and, and speaker here, who has a Bachelor's of Science from Cardiff University and an MRC and a PhD uh, from Newcastle University. She worked as the architect for the hub of biotechnology in the built environment and as an artist in residence at the Welcome Center for Mitochondrial. Mitochondrial. <laughs> I don't know. 
know. I'm guessing. <laughs> but like over here, I have it like how you say it right here. Oh, it is um, Maytow Yeah, mito. Maytow Maytow. <laughs> For. Mitochondrial research. <laughs> she, uh, she's an editor for the Biotechnology Design Journal and runs her own lab called the Wild Futures Lab. So much like the uh, other Coffee with an Architect event, I gave them the assignment to use 10 slides to introduce one of their own student projects and then a current project and talk about the, the journey between those two. And you can see all their images on our website or on our Instagram page. So it was a fun event. I've already talked too much. Check it out. Let's get to it. Enjoy. But first, here's a few messages from our sponsors. Hey, so we're sponsored by Form Kitchens. Now, Form Kitchens has spent the past year working alongside architects, designers, and builders to relaunch their trade program and make it easier for trade pros to deliver stunning spaces and experiences for their clients and projects. Their German cabinetry is produced by an 80-year-old manufacturing partner that builds millwork for the whole home, and their dedicated team works one-on-one with you to help hone all details of your design. They also have built a direct-to-customer model to deliver it all at a smart price point. Best yet, their head of brand and marketing, Michael, is actually located here in Denver and is always down to grab a coffee. Take him up on it. He's uh, definitely bought me a few coffees. Check out Form Kitchens at formkitchens.com and email Michael at michael at formkitchens.com for more info. And now, back to the show. Well, hi there, everybody. Um, welcome to Architecting Podcast Live Lunch with an Architect. Uh, my name is Trevor Motzko, and I am a fellow student here at CAP. Um, I've been working with the Architecting Podcast and some of the behind-the-scenes work for about six months now. So I'm honored to be up here today to introduce our exceptional group of panel guests. Uh, we have Leo and Lee. Jose Ibarra and Asia Crawford, as well as the man behind the mic, architect and podcast host, Adam Wagner. Um, so thank you all for taking the time out of your busy schedules. I know everyone's in preparations for finals coming next week. So thank you for being here and taking the time. So we're excited. This conversation is going to be centered around a Q&A. So if you have any questions at all or anything you're curious to hear about the faculty that teach you, we'd be happy to hear. Thank you. And help me in joining Architect and Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Trevor. My whole thing lately is how can I do the least amount of work and, and get things uh, done? And so I had Trevor do that introduction so I didn't have to write anything. But it was actually Trevor's idea, this event. And so I'm excited to have it here. And, and just this idea that the lecture series, it seems like it's been very well attended lately and, and a lot of fun with people that you don't necessarily know. And there seemed to be a desire to get to know the professors around us here, and especially this newest crop of professors who've brought great new lifeblood into the school. So I mostly just use this podcast to, to get to know people better that I, I want to know, and these three are three that I want to know better. So yeah, we're going to have a presentation with, with them. Uh, they're each going to have five minutes, and the idea was they're supposed to show you one of their student projects that they've done. 
and then a recent project and talk about the sort of journey between those two places. So, uh, and then we'll do some questions after. So yeah, let's just dive in. We're gonna go kind of like from newest arrivals to latest arrivals here. So we'll start with Lee. Tell us a good story. Hi, my name is Lee. Uh, for those who still haven't known me, I'm currently a visiting assistant professor of architecture at CAP. First of all, I would like to thank Adam for organizing such a meaningful event, which gives us a precious opportunity to talk about our school project, as well as reflect upon the struggles and dilemmas that we confront in school. Today, the project that I would like to share with you is called Stairhouse. It was a project that I did in collaboration with my teammate Neha Sahai in the graduate studio taught by Troy Shawn at Rice University. It's a microhousing proposal based in New York City that challenged the current paradigm of housing development. As demonstrated in the first columns of the diagram in a typical housing development model, the footprint of the site will be sheerly extruded and the volume is divided into generic standardized floors and then into repetitive units. Such qualities of home life and community are sacrificed for economic models of efficiency and compartmentalize the themes of collectivity into leftover plan space. In opposition to such a development model, we decided to challenge the idea of a generic flat floor by exploring the idea of hyperspecificity and domesticity. We start by looking into the scale of furniture as demonstrated in the last row and create a cluster of five units that shift sectionally and intersect internally. This operation of shifting create a series of hyper-specific thick and poche spaces while providing the opportunity to occupy the mid floors as shared spaces, such as shared kitchens and living room, which will be demonstrated in later drawings. And then these clusters are aggregated in a step manner, which ultimately inform its massing and its presence in the city. Here is a 1A section model that we made. As you can see here, each panel is, is a unit that is clustered and aggregated in a step manner, which produce a pattern of stairs that constitute the core concept of this project. This series of formal operations produce certain spatial effects that produce new forms of collectivity at all scales. As indicated in the floor plans here, the sequence of formal operations result in a gradient of publicities and privacies in the project. The ground floor, which is demonstrated here, is fully dedicated to, to communal uses. And in the upper level, the units on the parameters are the most private, etched by semi-private kitchens and living rooms, and connected by public stairs and atrium in the center. As indicated in the section, the operation of shifting and staggering created an atrium space that further challenged the typical flat floor and corridor. It enforced a new forms of public intimacy as it allows for constant visual and physical connections across different clusters and level. In the unit, the shifting and interlocking of rooms create poche spaces, which become a performative instrument to redefine the domesticity of the unit, making the limited interior spaces multifunctional, flexible, and operable. For instance, wall pochets as Murphy bed have micro kitchen and carbonate storage and contain plumbing and ventilation pipes. These pochets are not only activated as hyper-specific domestic programs, that can maximize the space and self-sufficiency of a unit, but also suggest a new way of domestic lifestyle that rests on the ideas of flexibility, adaptability, and malleability. In summary, this project aims to seek design alternatives of rethinking collectivity, specificity, and domesticity 
to enrich the space and living experience of micro units and understand how the reverse sequence of thinking from small to large could challenge certain norms and project a new way of designing micro housing. The attention towards small scale interior objects and their entanglements with the idea of flexibility and mobility has informed my recent project entitled Baochen Domestic Infrastructure of Care. In this project, we devise a series of movable furniture that facilitate the interplay between farming and sharing food, between delivering and consuming food. This series of furniture encompass vegetable growing racks, kitchen worktop, foldable dining tables, chairs, and is arranged to break down the tangible isolation between units, serving as different facilities to foster caring and sharing between residents and neighbors. Moving forward, we select seven pieces of furniture and fabricate them in the exhibition's venue. To enhance the flexible and interactive nature of the installation, growing tools and vegetable seedlings are prepared on the exhibition site, inviting visitors to cultivate vegetables in the installation and move around the furniture to accommodate their individual and collective uses. The main idea here is to explore how a small-scale object could actively engage our quotidian activities as well as engage our daily urban life. Thank you. Look at that, right, right at five minutes. So, you know, I've done this event twice at, at Boulder, and I, I don't think I've done it with uh, tenured professors yet, or tenured track professors, and you're very prepared <laughs> and uh, have it really written out. But with that first project, how did you explain it to your grandma in about three sentences? It's a micro housing project. It's a stair project. It's a project for living. Nice. <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right. Jose, you're up. Yeah. Thanks so much, Adam. And hi, everyone. So today I thought I'd present what was my undergraduate architecture thesis to really sort of embody that like student back in the day. And this project, which I titled Objet Petit A, was one that confronted what I understood at that time to be the urban trauma caused by the Berlin Wall, um, which separated, as you, as you must know, East from West Berlin. In a way, the question that this project was asking and hopefully answering was how could architecture and public space become a healing medium for the historical traumas that pervade cities and urban spaces? And the work, as I suggested earlier, was mostly informed by psychoanalytic theory. In the project, I used the diagrams of the psyche that we see there, where we see the superego, id, and ego, and then applied them to a diagram of the Berlin Wall in an attempt to make the wall speak, or let's say, put the wall on the couch. I was interested in understanding how large urban scars and public spaces, public activities, and public amenities could now come together to heal the wounds that this divisive structure had once created. And to do this, I engaged in a process of documentation and image making where I started to find remnants of this division in all sorts of social trends and phenomena. For example, the percentage of children in daycare in different parts of the city changed. The relative unemployment per neighborhood, the available income per capita, the regional use of different words, and even the relative amount of trash produced per citizen could be spatialized uh, because of this scar that divided the city that remained somehow in effect even many years after its demolition. Using different oral and visual histories, critical theory, and a continuous engagement with this particular situation, I designed a series of architectural and urban devices that changed throughout the seasons and times of day and which responded to the overall needs of the city. The main parts of the project were sited in Mauer Park, which we see there, a park in the city literally called the Wall Park, in which parts of the Berlin Wall were displayed. And in a way, the project became as much a narrative of possibilities 
as it was just a story of the things that already existed, but the ways in which they could be used and reused as well as choreographed. Although in many ways I think it was naive at that point to use the diagram of the psyche so directly, I learned a few things in this project. The first one being my relationship to trauma and its placement in architecture, and the second my belief that architecture should engage people and activity, that it should transform and not be static, but rather eventful, changing, and so on. So here's one of what would be normally a video in which the choreography of building parts, materials, lights, movement, and so on, were all used to enact architecture that responded to this specific situation. So the next project, years after, that I did actually with two collaborators, who uh, Paola Cuevas-Baez and Andres Romero-Pompa, who actually I met at Cornell when I was there for my undergraduate degree, is called Casa Camba, which received an honorable mention at the Felix Candela International Competition a few years back. This is a cultural center that celebrates a centuries-old relationship between agave and human beings. In recent years, avocado harvesting has been the sole agricultural focus of the state of Michoacán, and the exploitation of that resource has harmed several local ecosystems and created social and political conflicts in the region. Otherwise, we could call that also trauma. Meanwhile, agave, which is known colloquially as the tree of wonders, can help remedy soil issues, prevent erosion, and generate a series of byproducts that are both nutritious as well as useful, such as water, liquor, oil, vinegar, honey, fabrics, and so many more. So Casa Gamba harnesses the landscape as a healing medium and a meeting place for nature and the human. The architecture embeds itself on the land through a series of circular geometries that juxtapose humans and nature. At the landscape scale, a first circle materializes as a low agave brick wall with a diameter of 1.5 kilometers, reclaiming a significant area of the Michoacán land. Inscribed within that space, Casa Gamba ushers visitors toward the agricultural production of agave and its derivatives through a series of space-defining interventions that are sculpted from the ground itself. A circular steer canopy hangs 2 to 7 meters above the earth and is held up by the same landscape upon which it lies. Casa Gamba then is trying to create space for humans and non-humans constituencies by celebrating agave and its associated indigenous rituals to heal the wounded ecosystem that surrounds it by using the ecosystem and the landscape itself as the healing medium. And like the Berlin project, Casa Camba used a situation or a trauma, in this case the environmental crisis through the focus of avocado harvesting, as an avenue for architectural and for social production. Since the Berlin project and for the last several years, I've been critically assessing and cataloging many other urban spaces that have undergone ecological and social unrest. That's been the sort of trauma of our times, as I understand it, and developed a series of architectural and spatial potentials and responses. So here we see a few of those. My interest in this, deeply rooted is in this is deeply rooted in my own background, as I left Venezuela, my home country, ten, about 12 years ago after experiencing accelerated social unrest and geopolitical tensions. And as a Venezuelan architect, my work is concerned with the ways in which architecture can approach crises optimistically and opportunistically, meaning with the assumption that there are ways in which we architects can work amongst ourselves and together with other disciplines in remaking the world. And I try to get all my projects to answer a simple question, which is also highly complex. How is architecture remaining agile and relevant as an agent of social and cultural production amidst all of this unrest? On the other hand, I've also engage been engaged with other works such as Table Manners, which is a platform for scholarly work discourse that disavows the typical academic conversation format and swaps it with a space for sharing food, ideas, provocations, and much more. 
Although Table Manners just had its inauguration at CU Denver this spring, I've been working on these types of projects since 2017 and in outputs such as a colloquium at Princeton University, a performance at the Floating University in Berlin, a picnic at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, an exhibition at the University of Virginia, and much more. And through projects like this one, I continue to explore architecture's agency and power as a social art activator, as a choreographer of built structures, but also of bodies and things in space. Finally, as I look ahead and continue to build all this work at CU Denver, my current writings are mostly dealing with geoempathy, which is a new term that I've developed, prompting us to look at the Earth as the physical and metaphorical ground for architecture today and arguing for a design of process. And again, I hope you see some of the trend of what I'm saying here in projects like Casa Gamba, but even the Berlin one. This research thread sees architecture not only as an avenue for form-making, but also as a tool for producing spaces of cultural, social, and planetary significance. And they're hopefully going to be compiled into the manuscript that I'm currently writing, which I hope will be out in about two years' time. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah, that was, that was great to see, especially the, uh, your Berlin project. I also had my final undergrad project dealing with the Berlin Wall Ooh. and almost failed the studio that the project was so bad uh, because I think there was so many inputs in trying to do so much with it and that was much better than what I came up with. But I, I, that's what I, I enjoy about your work and like the, the last semester with the design build project you had down there kind of thinking about all these complex inputs and situations around the the environment and then being able to distill it in a physical way. I mean, this is just sort of architecture, but what's your advice of, of how you figured out how to distill that or in successful ways? Yeah, it's a great, but maybe also huge question, Adam, but thanks so much for, for those notes. And I'd love to see your project at some point. No, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> I don't want to see it. I think, um, you know, I always start actually with some intuitions, right? Like for me, the Berlin Wall project started because I was doing a minor in German studies during my undergraduate program. And so I was immersed in German culture and I was immersed in German language. And then I happened to go to Berlin for a whole summer. And while being there, I sort of started to think that there was something really strange and bizarre about the Berlin Wall. And I started collecting these visual and oral histories and trying to talk to people and, and sort of synthesize in a way what I was understanding it to be. And then using psychoanalytic theory, because Venezuela has sort of a lineage and, and a lot of Latin American countries of sort of using psychoanalysis as a productive means of sort of addressing trauma, right, of the individual. And I thought, what if I were to put the wall on the couch? Quite literally. So it was almost kind of just uh, humorous, um, but also trying to address something very serious. And I guess all this to say that there's a moment of sort of synthesis, which has to come in after just compiling a lot of information. And there's a moment of intuition that actually you as a designer need to decide when to stop, uh, when to stop looking at other outputs and listening to many other sort of people and things, and then just follow your gut and see what it turns out. And I would say, I don't think this project was extremely successful either, Adam, but the failures of it actually allowed me to sort of see opportunities in the future. And the way that I can talk about it now is very different from how I would have talked about it then, where I remember my final critique sort of went awry. Yeah. So that's a lesson for students, right? Your final critique doesn't stop. <laughs> it keeps playing out in your head over the years. All right. Asya. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Adam. Uh, it's very exciting to be here, and thank you for all of you who've joined us here in person and online. 
I am going to uh, talk about my master's thesis, which uh, seems like a lifetime ago. So I'll try and remember what it was about, even though you do kind of live with those things long after they're done. Now, I did my master's in Newcastle University in the northeast of England. So just to preface this, but this was a long project. This was a full year project, and it was the final project before graduation. So the project itself uh, started off with a very long research phase, and um, the studio was called Landscapes of Human Endeavor. We were asked to research a particular individual who shaped the course of humanity's growth, inventions, etc. And I decided to invest in looking at Nikola Tesla a very prominent scientist who about 150 years ago was looking at potentials for free energy. He was uh, working on a lot of the inventions and technologies that our contemporary science society relies upon nowadays. And the project started through the development of narratives, narratives around a lot of the influences that shaped his work that perhaps shaped the way we view his work and the way his work was utilized. And a lot of that uh, was then through drawings, through videos. This is actually one of the early videos that was based on his inventions. And it was a microcosm of various scenes, various technologies that he speculated, that he implemented, etc., and how that plays out in our contemporary imagination. Now, the ideas that Tesla had was were very much based around social equity and the idea of access to technology for all. So access to electricity, access to a lot of the things that we take for granted nowadays in our contemporary society, but that are denied to a large proportion of the population worldwide. Now, the second part of this exploration manifested in a polemical project that was entitled Evasion Island, and it was centered around contemporary trends of tax evasion, and the monopoly of the 1% over the working and middle class and the parasitic, but also sometimes symbiotic relationship. And what I mean by that is we, I was looking at various big corporations that have taken over worldwide and monopolized the market that we're also very much dependent upon in terms of boots on the ground. And um, a lot of this project was based on early research in terms of the economic trends, in terms of the reality of the way the financial system works. And it was actually set in the city of London, what we call as the London Square Mile where all the big financial banks are, the, the large institutions that sometimes have headquarters and that nowadays pay significantly less tax than the rest of the population. A lot of the architecture and the way that the actual project manifested was based actually on historical proposals for the city of London, which again were tied with 
a lot of financial and political influences and interests at the time, and a lot of them didn't actually come to fruition. So it was a lot of archival explorations that resulted in this polemical project where I tried to utilize architectural language that symbolizes power, that symbolizes old wealth, that symbolizes the status quo. And this idea of obscene excess against the backdrop of very strained middle and working class. So the the project is actually situated above the square mile of the city of London. So it is a flying island, which is continually manufacturing and repairing itself. And St. Paul's Cathedral was reimagined as the new stock exchange, something far and removed, a symbol of the establishment. And a lot of the project was actually explored through section. Now, how does this actually tie in with that first part in terms of Tesla and electricity and the idea of withholding information, withholding technology? Well, actually, we, we start to see some of these inventions, some of these structures creeping into the proposal and really emphasizing how this disproportionate access to information and technology that is available to us in the West is becoming more and more removed and more and more exclusive to the 1%. So this is the St. Paul's Cathedral or the new St. Paul's Stock Exchange that is powering this parasitic entity that is very much hovering over London quite literally in this instance. And um, the majority of the exploration actually took place through section. I intentionally stayed away from literally representing plans in terms of reading the project. It was very much a narrative, a fictional narrative that was never supposed to be taken literally. And it was always that struggle of translating it into an architectural language, but in a way that there is a distinction, that this is a satire and a critique rather than a proposal. So it is in no way a proposal of a solution. It is a means of exposing an issue. And the idea of narrative creation is a huge driver in my work and in my process. I actually see it as a design thinking tool. So the generation of the images and the details that emerged from that actually informed a lot of the thinking along the way. So that wasn't really a final outcome. It was uh, very much a process. And here we can see this idea of the interior as a veneer, something that is projecting an image that has no substance. So in fact, the technical detail acquired a meaning beyond the physicality, and it started to actually talk to various political systems, technological systems, through the choice of materials, through the the construction detail, actually symbolizing this idea of a scaffold, a theater set, etc. So a lot of this was actually expressed through technical detail. That if I have to be honest, I had a little bit of a love-hate relationship with uh, during my master's. It was um, a little bit of an unknown. I was trying to piece it together. But then the way 
I started familiarizing myself with technical detailing did not happen necessarily through practice and detailing the real, my first real dive into technical detailing and how I started to develop a certain affection for this aspect of the design work was through this polemical project that was very much utilizing the language, but not necessarily have the same constraints that we have in a real practice. Uh, so there was a little bit of irony in this, that it was actually through the fantasy that I started to gain appreciation for the reality. And here we can see another example. And I, the whole project was a whole series of construction drawings and sections and a lot of these various scenes. So in a way, it paints this very elaborate system that seems to be very cohesive. And that was then intentionally in order to portray the stock exchange and the new city of London as a well-oiled machine. So even the, the drawings were very much an expression of that social structure. And here we see this idea of the residential, we, we have certain prominent references such as the Pantheon, this idea of domestication of nature, the idea of excess being captured, being shipped off so we can easily draw parallels between various efforts to ship relics and ship all of these items that are really symbolic of a particular era into these new contexts to express power and to express wealth without an actual appreciation or an understanding of the cultural context within which they existed back in the day. And this is just a quick overview. And this is probably the most complete image that we see of the proposal where we can kind of infer some sort of a plan. And now there is this new project that I'm working on that's actually looking back on kind of follows the mode of expression. My work really transitioned from this kind of digital animation, VR, et cetera, into biodesign and lab practice, et cetera. But um, a lot of that is also surrounded with a lot of social theory a lot of political theory in terms of the way we approach environmental issues. So I always try and look at the broader references and why these things are occurring. And um, my new project that I'm going to be working on for the next year is going to be a graphic novel that tells the story of various parts of biodesign, of various parts of how we deal with ecology, in particularly in the built environment through the creation of a narrative. Again, even though it is outcomes, it is looking at the problem and trying to tell a story, uh, trying to engage people on a different level where we can perhaps look at this from the point of view of a bystander outside of architecture, but also we can see how a lot of these conversations, a lot of these tensions are coming to the forefront within architectural education as well. So this is just one of the frames and it deals with viruses and various pesticides, et cetera, and antibiotics. And um, the next frame here, we have this story of the bacteria and the idea of overpopulation through the metaphor of the Petri dish. So if we imagine 
bacteria have a doubling time, i.e. every X amount of time, they double in terms of population. And everything looks absolutely fine until the final doubling. So you go from a petri dish that is half full to a petri dish that is completely full and overflowing. And when we look at population growth, that is a metaphor that we can apply to population growth as well. It is exponential. And a lot of this work, even though it is completely fictional, is very much tied to the very real tangible work that I'm doing within a lab setting, which is that last frame. This is an image of living algae. It is, um, again, a visual representation, but it's actually a data sample. And um, that, again, ties into reality, to actual making. And a lot of the work in the graphic novel is based on actual conversations and actual experiences that I've encountered along the way. But um, I think to sum up, drawing and representation has always been a huge part of the way I process various issues. And um, I, I don't necessarily see it as an end in itself. I see it as a way of thinking, almost a meditative practice that helps me develop ideas just through the fact that one, it takes time, but also as you start to craft an image, you know, various ideas start to come to the surface. So yeah, it's a little bit of a collage. Great. Yeah. Thank you. I, I really, I really appreciate that, that approach to architecture of the sort of fictional narrative and critique. And it is a specific kind of track within architecture, right? Of starting off in architecture school. Was that something when you got into school, you sort of had an eye towards that path or you were going to go be a uh, data center architect or something and then discovered sort of this passion of using architecture as a tool to kind of address larger issues and staying there? You know, it's funny because when I first started my undergraduate education, I went in with the idea that I was going to be the one making the towers in the city of London. I, I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to join a big corporate practice once I'm, I become a real architect and, you know, I'm going to make skyscrapers. And um, that ambition somehow uh, changed into this critique of those very things. And, um, Yes. So I don't think I could have really foreseen where I ended up in my master's thesis project because along the way, in terms of my architectural education and what I really love is the fact that it actually eroded that very stale and rigid definition that I have of architecture and what being an architect is, because I feel like before I actually started my education, I could have given you kind of like a one-line you know, definition of what is architecture. And um, I think if we were to have this discussion now, we could probably write a book about it. <laughs> but uh, that really freed me up in terms of my thinking. But even at the point of doing my master's thesis, I was very convinced that I was going to go into practice. What I did not anticipate was that I really enjoyed doing my master's thesis. That was a really fun thing to do. And once I was in practice, I felt like I had unfinished business. The bio stuff was really something that was always on the back, kind of like, you know, on the back burner and back of my mind. It was part of what I encountered in my undergraduate degree in terms of some of the ideas that I was reading about, but it was very inaccessible. And by the time it came to going down the PhD route, 
it was becoming a little bit more established. There was a little bit more of a clear route as to how to get into that and how to transition from that traditional architectural education into something that is interdisciplinary. But I feel that having that very robust specialism in terms of being an architect and going through all the stages has really informed my thinking in the way I approach biodesign. I'm very critical of, you know, the idea of techno fixes and the idea that you can just kind of like, you know, press a button and technology will solve it all. So I think in terms of research, that was something that really carried through. But no, there, there was no plan there. Um, in fact, my plan was going in a different direction. You know, I was going to have a real job. Right. <laughs> nice. Well, yeah, thank you to these three. You know, I think it's great just to, again, yeah, hear their stories, but then see these projects that don't usually get unearthed that we all spend so much time on. And, you know, I think in a way these, these were kind of unfair because they look so good, but I think it's also aspirational for you guys right now uh, as you're coming up on finals here. So I think as we have kind of a few more minutes, is there any questions uh, for them? I mean, especially about just school and crits and whatever, you got them on the, on record. You can ask and then I'll kind of repeat it in here for the, for the podcast. So just the question of, what do you do when you graduate? And uh, if you don't want to go into grad school and what are those other venues and opportunities? My advice, and this is for experience, is it's a numbers game. I remember when I was looking for a job out of my undergraduate degree, I applied for over 50 positions. They weren't advertised. I cold called. I sent you know, CVs everywhere, portfolios, and... Also, I was very open in terms of where that kind of like, you know, put me. So I didn't go for necessarily only the top three or five choices. I applied worldwide and I ended up in Zurich, Switzerland for 15 months. So that was something that was completely unplanned. But I would say, you know, don't take it personally. Just keep plugging at it. Uh, yeah, I think. Thanks for that question. I remember myself also like going from undergrad and thinking like, I, I know I want to teach eventually. I know I want, I know the things that I think I like and want to do, but also I just want some time to like reflect on those things. And I appreciate and completely in a way understand Asia's comment about the numbers games, right? Because there's like a tangibility, especially leaving undergraduate school where you're really thinking about, I need to pay the bills and I need to do all these like very real things. And so. That's definitely in the mix, but try to not let that temper completely erase your wants also, right? Like let your needs also inform your wants creatively. So try to ask yourself, like, what have I enjoyed doing while I've been in school the most, right? Have I enjoyed drawing? Have I enjoyed like building things? Have I enjoyed doing X or Y or Z? And then based on that, I would say, talk to your mentors and professors, right? Like schedule time to talk to any one of us and your current professors and say like, hey, like, who do you think produces this type of work? What can I do? And I think through those conversations, you typically find like sometimes even a way in, but at worst, just some idea of where actually you might fit in that could also generate uh, money and all the things that are so important, right, for, for one's livability. But yeah, I would say rather than being discouraged or even scared by the sort of abyss that might present itself with graduation, be excited, especially if you think that graduate school is ahead 
at some point for you, then this is the best transitional period because you're kind of like a fully realized professional and adult, but that can also like be as experimental as you want to be. <laughs> and no one's going to be asking you like, why did you do that? Because you were precisely in this exciting period, which may actually like create the, or like continue for the entirety of your life. So yeah, I think just approach it with excitement and passion. That would be my, my sort of approach. Thank you so much for the question. I could actually relate to that. When I just graduated, I was also very lost. So I decided not to do architecture for two years. I worked in a gallery. During this process, I realized that, you know, a lot of things that I was still interested in at that time has something to do with spatial planning, which kind of led me back to the grad school. So I decided to, you know, give it a try and see if I enjoyed that discipline or not. So I joined grad school and during this three years of study, I worked in different type of firms. I worked for design firms, I worked for corporate firms, I worked for small scale firms, through which I got to explore many different types of projects. I think that's a really good experience because, you know, like after you work in so many different types of firms, you, you start to form or maybe like start to shape what you like and what you don't like, and also trying to maybe have a better idea of what you would like to do in the future. And in some way that informed my, my decision and, and I decided to join academia. So basically like it took me pretty much five years to explore, to figure out what I really like. So it's really hard to just reach a conclusion right now, just figure out, oh yeah, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do grad school. I don't want to do grad school. It might be too early on to make a decision. Take a little bit of time off and just try to think what you like and eventually follow your gut. Yeah, because I think that numbers game of you have to make money maybe, you might end up at a place you don't want to be, right? But that idea of, of what are those things that you're excited about and that you can like tangibly set deadlines for yourself, like a competition or something where you're saying, I need to get this done by this. And especially when you're coming off of studio where you're used to being so productive and to kind of fill that void for a little bit to let yourself come off this weird drug, but kind of setting up those projects for yourself in a very specific way, I'd say is, is helpful. Cool. The question was, is there anything you like specifically about here at CAP or Denver? Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, you know, I try to show my work today or these couple of projects in relationship to situations. And one thing that I am really excited about just being in Colorado and being at CAP and being in Denver right now is the immense sort of amount of just landscape phenomena and sort of like nuclear waste plants, like all these like insane in a way things that are at the same time in this like what feels like an untouched and beautiful landscape, but that also has a lot of history and, and actually a lot of stuff even underground and above ground. So I found that this place feels like extremely productive. Like I continuously keep thinking about potential projects, studios, things that I want to work on and what I'm not finding is enough time to do all those things, but I think that's to be expected. And I don't know, I think that's that's one thing that I know has driven me in the past, like confronting a situation like I presented earlier. And so looking for some place that would help me thrive in those environments, I think has been productive or generative so far. And then of course, like the colleagues, there's so many great things here, so many possibilities that I've enjoyed. Yeah, things that I enjoy about CAP in Denver, gosh. Well, first of all, I've really enjoyed my transition here, but also I love the fact that I can share all the research that I'm doing with my students and my teaching. And I've been incredibly fortunate that CAP has been incredibly supportive of sustainability, of biodesign, of making. 
We have a very long history of doing that very successfully within uh, the college. And um, our students are very willing to actually take on all of these new skills and ideas. And they're not afraid to actually get their hands dirty. And uh, I'm just super excited about being able to teach making with living organisms and uh, experimental lab practice and all of these things that weren't accessible to me as an undergraduate or a graduate student back in my education. So I feel that I'm incredibly lucky in that sense. And generally, Denver has been a great place to be. I think we all enjoy the weather. I know in the UK, we talk a lot about it, but there's a reason for it. We don't actually get to see any sunshine. So I count myself very lucky. Yeah, pretty much similar reasons. I'm relatively new here, so it's literally my fourth month living in Denver. The longer I stay, the more I, I really appreciate the opportunity to work with my colleagues. There is a really good crowd of faculty at CAP at this moment. First, Rick is here. One thing that really attracted me to come here is the Design Build program. It made me sound like a student, actually. Well, because I really appreciate the, the culture of making here. As you can see in my work, I'm very drawn to making things or building stuff. And that's why I really appreciate this kind of like this kind of culture of making or doing in the college. Another thing is I really like working with my students. They all demonstrate really good skills of thinking, design thinking, and very good skills of making, which I really appreciate and something that I really enjoy working with this semester. So yeah, I think those are things that kind of like, you know, attract me to Denver, maybe pretty much in hindsight, but still like. It has been a really amazing experience, yeah. Yeah, thanks. I know you guys got to go back to studio, so, uh, or, or some of you. We have time for about one more question. Yeah, so the question is just what brought you each to teaching and what do you see the, the future holding? Well, I actually never thought about teaching at the very, at the very beginning. So I, was, I graduated in 2020 during the pandemic. Uh, at that time, I had a hard time finding a good job. So I got a few job offers, but the pay was horrible at that time because of the, the pay cut. So an opportunity came up. One of my supervisors at that time invited me to teach a studio with him at Rice University. And I was kind of hesitated to do that because I never really thought about teaching. I wanted to just be you know, a practicing architect for a very long time. And because of that, I start, I decided to give it a shot and I decided to teach that studio, the freshman studio with my supervisor at that time. And I really enjoy it. And that kind of informed, you know, like totally changed my trajectory, my career trajectory, just because I realized that I discovered this kind of hidden love for, for teaching. And I decided to just pursue that as my career. Yeah, that's a really interesting one because... I think for me, in the beginning, it was a feeling that I enjoy research, but I didn't know if I would really love teaching. It was one of those things where I don't think you really know until you've actually tried it. So I remember being a little bit apprehensive at the idea of like, you know, having 25 students and teaching them and, you know, people relying on me. And um, I actually got into teaching by chance. It was something that I was looking at at the time. And I got offered to be an adjunct for foundational studio in the undergraduate program at Newcastle University. And I very vividly remember that first day of teaching. 
I was terrified and I thought, oh God, I hope the students don't know it. But I remember thinking after I finished that day that this feels different. You know, this feels really good. I feel like the conversations that I had that day were really meaningful and that I could see that I made some sort of a difference there. You know, that impact that you're having is very apparent right away. And that was something that perhaps in practice when you're working on a project and it takes such a long time and sometimes, you know, your client is not necessarily your user, et cetera. And, you know, there are various objectives. You don't always get that sense of satisfaction after, you know, say, you know, your design team meeting. But teaching was different. Teaching was incredibly rewarding from the get-go. And I realized that I was incredibly passionate about that. That was something that I really enjoyed doing because there was that human connection. Yeah, I felt that teaching then pushed me into academia because it was one of those things where I knew that academia was very much about teaching. And yeah, it, it kind of clicked, but it was very difficult to say, yes, I'm going to plan and do this, you know, in 10 years time. For me, it was one of those things that I was a little bit apprehensive about. And then it was like, yes, and it just clicked. I think for me, when I was at when I was in the first grade, if you can believe it, for some reason in Venezuela, they had this really intense system of exams, actually, even since the first grade. And I had been exempted from taking the exams because of my grades throughout the academic year. And my mom completely opposed to having me like two weeks early in the house uh, while my sister was at school. So then my teacher at that point, what she decided is she was going to have me grade my peers' works, which was in hindsight, kind of crazy, but I loved it. <laughs> and I don't know, I think since that point, I mean, especially considering that nowadays, maybe the thing I enjoy the least is actually grading. That was sort of a, something that told me that I was interested in just like being with students. And I don't know, again, I was just like six or seven years old, but I found it kind of amusing and thrilling somehow. And then prior to going and doing my undergrad at Cornell, I was a student for a couple of years at the uh, Miami-Dade College in Miami. And when I was in Miami, I was a community organizer for a nonprofit organization because I thought I wanted, you know, I needed some money to pay bills and things like that. And I found that working with teams of young people like myself and helping them sort of build projects for the community was incredibly enriching. So I just found that there was something in talking to students and carrying this sort of mentorship role that was also akin to a collaborative practice or a collaborative project. And I don't know, I just sort of fell in love with that. And then in undergrad, I like really pushed every professor of mine to let me teach. And then I taught a couple of classes there. And by the time I left undergrad, I really knew that's what I wanted, but I decided to practice for a bit and eventually went into graduate school, taught a few times and continued to just sort of fell in love with it. But actually teaching came first before architecture for me, really. So, yeah. Well, nice. You know, I think I think I could keep going for like another two hours, but we'll wrap it up there. And thank you guys. And I think this just kind of demonstrates the sort of wealth of knowledge that we have around at the school and just the, the willingness to share. And I think that's, uh, it just takes that initiative to go up and talk to someone and, and uh, just really using this time to soak, soak everything up you can. So good luck with the finals and thanks for coming. Thanks, yeah, guys. good luck. Yeah, good luck. Thank you, Adam. Thanks so much, Adam. Yeah, thanks, guys. 
you can visit architecting.com, that's architect-ing.com, to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. Hi, I'm Eli. This show is made by my mom and dad and these people. Heidi Mendoza. Aaron Best. Kyle Bruner. Emily Child. Trevor Notzko. Zach Huff. Rob Cleary. All right, let's get a coffee. See ya. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.